Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. Lighting design has been a fascination of mine since my time in high school art classes. I think it's lighting's ability to transform a space and make it feel utterly different that really intrigued me. It's an often underappreciated aspect of designing a building or interior, and perhaps even taken for granted. Of course, Every single person understands the importance of it in a hospitality setting. After all, we've all been in a restaurant when they turn down the lights at a certain moment, changing the mood of the entire space. As a result, I was very excited to have my guest for this episode, Brian Orter, agree to speak on the podcast. His firm, Bold, spelled out Brian Orter Lighting Design, was one I worked with in my early 20s when I was just starting out as an architect. While I never met Brian at that time, I do recall that they were one of the first consultants I was really impressed with when I was working for Shop Architects. Of course, every company has their strengths and weaknesses. Bold did a great job at both putting together a narrative of the lighting design that the client could understand and get excited about. But when it came to the documentation, and I was working way too many late nights and weekends putting a CD set together, his team at Bold really came through and it was a pleasure to work with them. In this episode, We talk about how Brian got started as a lighting designer, and while I won't give away any spoilers, he had a pretty interesting entry into the profession, which ultimately laid a great foundation for the work he continues to do to this day. We touch on his hiring process, philosophy as a leader of a company, the differences between New York and LA as a place to work, and of course we talk about the press, which was a landmark project Bold did in collaboration with EYRC converting the old Los Angeles Times printing press into a state-of-the-art office space. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Building LA podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you. Me too. So I wanted to start going way, way back into your teenage years. As I understand correctly, You started working in theaters in New York as a teenager. Can you take us back to that time, why you got involved in the theater industry and what kind of work you were doing as a teenager working in the theaters? When I was 14, I didn't get cast in a chorus line because I can't sing. And somebody from the crew department, from stage crew, came up to me in the hallway in high school and said, I hear you're pretty handy. Would you like to be in lighting? I said, sure. (laughs) And that's ultimately how the path got started. He was a senior and I was a freshman. 
And he graduated and I wound up taking over the lighting department and much of the stage design department in Edward R. Murrow High School, which if you think sports is important in your school, the theater department is the most important thing at Edward R. Murrow. Mm. It Mm. was designed as an art school, particularly around communication, and we didn't have any sports teams. So all of our sports money went to our theater program. So it ended up being... Pretty serious stuff. We had serious New York directors. We had great writers. We have great set designers and a fantastic shop. So it put me in a great position to have credibility. And from there, I ended up at 16 years old. So here's where the story gets a little bit personal. I spent a lot of time out of the house for various reasons, which that's the personal stuff. My family was nice, but I did spend spend a lot of time out of the house. I ended up getting work in New York at about 16 years old. And this is another one of those happenstance stories. I was working at the Ritz, which was a concert hall in in New York at 16 as an intern, maybe 17, whatever year you were a junior. General manager comes up to the lighting booth, which is the balcony rail at the place. It was Agnostic Front. I forget who the other bands were. I think it was Agnostic Front, Murphy's Law, and a bunch of bands that maybe didn't make it. And it was really hardcore. So this General manager comes up to the to the lighting rail and says, does anybody here know how to do lighting? I said, I'm the assistant. I'm supposed to be working tonight. And he said, great. The lighting director just died. We need somebody to do lighting. He died oh, of an wow. overdose. This is the old Studio 54 space. And if you've ever seen pictures of it, there are these cages and valleys and like... Um, rooms down in the basement and apparently he and a couple of friends overdosed and he was brought to the hospital and died in the ambulance and I wound up doing the show that night and ended up picking up work on a regular basis. Was it love at first sight with doing that kind of work or did it did that have to grow and develop over time? From an early age I was always interested in photography. My mom was a photographer. I took inspiration from non-photographer photographers like Man Ray. Uh, if you don't know Man Ray's work, he worked primarily with negatives and in the dark room and that sort of thing instead of using the camera. My father was a, is a photographer. So I, I understand kind of growing up with that background. Yeah. So I sort of thought I would be a photographer, honestly. And I went to, mm. after, I went to purchase uh, college, SUNY purchase at the time for theatrical lighting design and then went to Parsons for photography. It just sort of was born through that gig at uh, the Ritz. I ended up getting other work. I ended up at Palladium and Limelight and Tunnel. And I didn't do drugs, so I was reliable, uh, I was good at music. I understand. Lighting is super interesting in nightclubs because it's all, if you understand basic blues, everything, mm-hmm. all modern music and even classical music, it's all basically on the eights, right? So it's, Eight bars, Mm -hmm. you know, four counts, eight bars, 32. You change it to 32 like jazz. And techno and dance music all builds on the eight count. So it's one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. And if you can get behind Mm -hmm. the lighting with that, you'll always know where the audience is going. That's interesting. So you can build with that. Uh, So I enjoyed the audience. I enjoyed the connection that lighting had to the people. That's what really turned me on about it. And in theater, it's extremely connected. Were you there? Would you have to stay late and actually manage the lights live kind of with the music? Oh, yeah. So theater is a little bit different. Live music, theater and dance, right? Mm -hmm. So live music, theater and nightclubs, right? Those are in entertainment. Those are sort of the primary. You have industrials. You have all sorts of presentational things as well. 
but let's take uh, live music, for example. So as best as you can, you would get the recordings, you get the set beforehand, and you would program into these computers, lighting boards, some general scenes, understanding some blocking. If it's a super professional gig, mm-hmm. then you're there with the the talent going through multiple tech rehearsals. Mm-hmm. You build your programs. You know what the set list is going to be. You have some room built in for an artist that wants to go off offset for a little while and you've got some infrastructure there that you can kind of build on. But you always leave a little bit of room for customization, mm-hmm. right? So for the live really professional sets. But oftentimes, you have no idea who's coming in that night right. to perform. And you just have what we call a rep plot, essentially. And you program every... Uh, so I did everything in white. I would program all of my lighting mm-hmm. in white. And then I would ha- change the tempo of it. I can move lights at different speeds. And I would build colors and patterns on top of that. So all my programming is in white with some motion to it. And I can just sort of use that infrastructure and build from hundreds of different scenes that were programmed Hmm. Um, or often just grab lights individually and track them using joysticks or faders and that sort of thing. This is super interesting because I grew up in London. My friends would go to a lot of gigs. That's what we did on the weekends as a teenager. And at that time, I was kind of developing an interest in architecture. I knew I was going to be in some sort of design field. And the lighting in particular at places like the O2 in Brixton, for example, or Alexandra Palace, mm-hmm. the lighting always had a huge effect on the amount I was enjoying the music. And to this day, now living in LA, in LA obviously there's a fantastic number of great venues here. I've really been going to the Hollywood Bowl a lot recently. And because of the shape of that space and the shape of the stage and the Art Deco nature of it, People can light that incredibly effectively. And I'm always curious about how much of it is like improvised, the music, particularly with like like a jam band, or how much is rehearsed. And it sounds like what you're saying is it's a little bit of both to a certain extent. It depends. It super depends on the venue, the amount of timing, the amount of time that you have to Uh build in between. If you're going to the Hollywood Bowl, for example, you're generally going to get a lot of time for rehearsal and building Mm-hmm. building those cues and it's going to be very rehearsed so there are cues in there and ways that you can grab things that if it does go offset you can improvise interesting but generally speaking and as the boards as the consoles got even more reliable essentially you're kind of just hitting go go it's just a a, mm. a scene button you can almost like an airplane take it manually and build the cues and add some. You know, if the if Paul McCartney's going a little off track, you can kind of hold the scene back. You can pause the scene. You can grab. You can actually stop all the movement if you want. Hit a blackout or hit a freeze. Mm-hmm. But with a concert like that, he's getting on turntables and moving, and the lights need to come up on the on the turntable that's rising out of the stage. It's all very careful, and it's all very dangerous, and there are pyrotechnics involved. Right. So you've got a stage manager going, okay, lights cue, go, uh, Foley, go. You know, all of those things are go, go, go. But when we go to a nightclub, let's say you go to Heaven in London, for example. Mm-hmm. I actually operated the board at Heaven for a little while. You get a DJ and... Here are the questions I ask at nightclubs. So who's the DJ? I get to know the DJ a little bit. What are the drugs that they're doing tonight? <laughs> yeah, is there an after hours? Yeah, it's it makes a difference, right? Yeah. What's the drugs for this type of crowd? 
are they gay? Are they straight? Is there an after hours party? Is there a live band interrupting the set? All of those things have a crescendo effect. So I need to pull back on what's happening between 11 and one. If there's going to be somebody coming on at one o'clock, because mm-hmm. The peak of the night might be with the band or the live act or slightly after it. So we have to kind of pull back. And that's all improvised. It's all live with some basic infrastructure built in. But many times I'll be building scenes live, depending on where the night's going. It makes sense because you're following the crowd at a certain point and the energy of the crowd. And so you want to know a little bit of the outset where it might go, Mm -hmm. but ultimately... It, the crowd could go in a different direction. The DJ can go in a different direction. So that's I'll, super exciting. I'll even know if there's a bad batch of drugs. Right, right. That's I'll, amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'll know. You can feel that. And here's where it really ties to architecture, which is kind of fascinating. So I'll know where things need to go in a nightclub, for example, mm-hmm. based on how the crowd's responding. But let's say I don't no, let's say I'm not in tune with that. And the DJ is off and running and building this crowd and I'm falling behind. Or if I'm ahead of the DJ and pumping all of this excitement in, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you leave the club. If the lighting's off, you leave the club going, you leave the club feeling that wasn't sexy. Mm-hmm. I didn't have as much fun. The DJ wasn't as great. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily know that it was the lighting. But with the lighting, so in clubland, if the lighting and the drugs and the music and the crowd are all in sync, you just had a fantastic time. Yeah. Yeah. But if one of those guys is off, it kind of ruins it. So we're not in architecture. Mm-hmm. You've got the lighting designer, the architect, the interior designer, the engineer, the owner, whether, you know, especially in, in hospitality. And then you've got the crowd. It's all the same. So moving towards architecture, I'm curious from the period where you were working a lot in the nightclubs, particularly in New York City, to when you founded Bold, Brian Auto Lighting Design. Talk us through that period. Were you working? Were you were you working with other lighting designers at the time? Were you always on your own? I'm curious, like how you went from being a, a very proficient and clearly very talented designer who was particularly in the theater and nightclubs to founding a company that is now known primarily for architecture and hospitality and a lot of different uh, disciplines. The theater. I was doing theater for a long time. I went to school for theater and thought that that was going to be the path. So after photography has always been a passion of mine. And after I decided that, okay, maybe photography is not the career. That's one of the hobbies. That's one of the passions. And I actually had a lot of success in photography. I was represented by a gallery. There's some museums that had a museum that collected some pieces. I've had some great collectors as well. But when I realized that wasn't really the thing, I started doing more from the theater and the nightclubs. I started doing going into restaurants and things like that. And I don't know if it was so much a decision as it was following the path. Mm. Mm-hmm. It became what it was. And I would get jobs. So I didn't know that I was a company at the time. When, I, when you're a little kid, you know, I was 19, 20, 21 when I was doing all of this. I worked through all throughout high school and colleges, all throughout all of that. I worked consistently. I would leave the house at 6 or 7 a.m., have school, work, friends, dates. And I sometimes wouldn't get home till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It never really felt like work. But I realized that I was moving from an independent contractor to like a legitimate company. When people said, I need you to build the nightclub, I need you to come in to do the restaurant, I realized I needed to hire some people. So for the teenage early years, 20s and so, it was just, hey, get some friends and do some drafting. And then it started to become real. 
I created a company. Did you have a clear ambition for the company at the time or was it, did it feel more reactionary just to the demand that you were feeling from, from people who wanted you to work for them? The clear ambition for the company came in 2008. Okay. So there's a pretty big gap. So it really was just going with the flow, doing the best work I can, working with enormously creative people and just having a snowball running down the hill fun. It sounds right? like a just, lot of fun. Just can't even, the gigs we were getting, the people we were meeting, it just was just a hive of creativity, never really worrying about the insurance, not worrying about payroll. Everybody got paid. Everybody was fine. We were talking about small dollars too, you know, fee ranges and a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, it wasn't, right. in pay, you know, not for me, I would, I would pay all of the people that were, mm -hmm. were helping as well. You build a nightclub and then you operate it, you get paid Oh God, I was getting paid like 80 to $120 a night. Um, wow. And that was it. I was yeah. just having a blast. Yeah. You probably didn't care that much, right? Because you, you were having so much fun. I yeah. was living with a DJ and his girlfriend on Avenue B and we had an apartment in Williamsburg. It just, we didn't care. Yeah. Money was not the goal. But I will tell you, there is a point at which you just sort of, especially in New York City, you get tired of being really poor. I, I, I yeah, I, I had that moment. <laughs> I think I think I think everyone does to a certain extent. I think yeah. I think there's a, there's a there's a point in time in New York where you are having a lot of fun, and then there's this tipping point where you start to actually think about more than just today. Yeah, I also think in New York, the world really. You know, Giuliani took over New York and killed nightlife. Hmm. It, it may have been kind of on its way out anyway, but he certainly stabbed it in the heart a few times. And so the nature of nightlife in New York changed and the cost of living in New York changed the demographics. Yeah. So you weren't, you weren't just getting paid with the satisfaction of meeting the most creative people in the world. The nightclubs that were coming in had major investment. They wanted words like ROI started coming in. They would pay the people that we would normally get in for free just for having fun. They were now getting paid to show up at these clubs. Hmm. And they weren't having a fun time hanging out with extremely wealthy kids ordering bottle service. Right. So it kind of lost its spark to some degree. So I ended up actually working a couple of steps in between, but I ended up working for a company called um, Johnson Schwinghammer. So somewhere in between all of that, I moved to Los Angeles to follow a guy and we moved in together. I was living in New York, doing really well, and he didn't want to live in New York. He was a, a successful writer breaking into movies. And so I decided to go, I traveled back and forth for a while, but eventually I just moved in with him in West Hollywood. We had a nice apartment and I lost my mojo. I lost all my contacts. I'm a New York hustler. I'm not, I'm not at the speed of which LA, I'm, I'm too brash and I'm too fast for the LA networking scene at the time. Mm -hmm. This was 2002. And so I got some work. I was doing some stuff. I was becoming successful in LA, still having some New York clients, but my momentum lot was, was much lower. And I didn't have the years of building relationships in LA that I had in New York. Did you, were you working on similar projects in LA? Well, I was picking up photography again to some degree because that's, people were asking me to do it. But, uh, I was doing more restaurants and things at the time, so kind of out of the nightclubs already. Still a few would kick up here and there, but it was more restaurants, hotels, private residences, 
and things like that. And it just wasn't quite taking off. And then I've had this conversation with other people in, in the arts. The arts, especially when you are on your own, has an enormous amount of rejection. It just, yeah. It's just rejection and criticism pretty much from birth to death. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been told that many times by friends that have gone into the acting business, particularly in LA. We now know a, a decent amount of people in the, in the entertainment industry. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's the key, actually, to success is having a very, very, very hard skin. Yeah. So I ended up getting a job with a small, super creative lighting design firm called Vortex Lighting and Militello. Incredibly creative. And for a little while, it was just the two of us. Then we hired a couple of people and there's three or four of us. A tiny little office off of Sunset Boulevard in, in Hollywood. And then I ended up meeting this guy, Clark Johnson. And I said, I, he wanted to split from his partner. So this was Clark Johnson and he had a partner named Bill Schwinghammer. And he wanted to split the firm and eventually retire, right? So he needed an exit strategy. I said, why don't you take over the firm? Right? Mm -hmm. We'll give a five-year plan. You could come in as design director and Within a short time, we kind of hammered out the beginnings of a succession plan, hmm. but how I would purchase the company from him and run it through a long sort of a five-year payout period. Seemed like a great idea, and I wanted to get back to New York. So I think that was in 05. I went back to New York, took over the company, and day one, he had this knockout screaming fight with his soon-to-be ex-business partner. And I'm okay. just taking my little stuff. I'm taking it back in the back in those days. We still had templates. I had my favorite redlining pen, pens and pencils. And I start taking this stuff out onto my drafting table. And I start putting them back in. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> this is not a good sign on day one. <laughs> so I worked with him for a couple of years, heading up the company and did well. But he's a very volatile person. Everybody that comes out of that company, we all get together sometimes and have stories that we now laugh about. But at the time... I remember there was a moment one morning and there's a huge, they had a huge space in Manhattan in Midtown. One day we all come into the office and all of our desks were these giant pine desks with drafting tables. And we sort of shared them. There was somebody right on to your left and somebody to your right. And one day we come in and there was this giant sheetrock wall and something like 18 foot ceilings or 17 foot ceilings. It's a giant sheetrock wall dividing the space in half. Essentially, the person that I was sitting next to, now there was a wall in between us, and that was Bill Schwinghammer's side, and this was Clark Johnson's side. And so in a way, I became their divorce counselor, and that became really stressful. So one day, there was a really stressful moment, and I go over the other side to Bill's office, who I had a good relationship with, and I was holding my, my hair, I was holding my head, and I take my hand out, and I was losing my hair. Oh, wow. And I said, no job is worth that. And I quit. Very shortly after that, in 2008, I think that may have been August or September of 08, and then the crash. Based on that experience, has that now informed a lot of how you operate your business? Because I'm sure there were things that actually worked really well, particularly maybe the creative side of that business, but had a lot of the drama that was a distraction. I think when you're in the creative world... Working with major theater directors and producers and nightclub owners, you know, Peter Gation, Ian Schrager, you work with these bombastic visionaries and they're so rewarded for their success. 
And you think, well, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to work in this industry and you want to make it to the top, that this is just who you need to be and who you work for. Mm-hmm. There are architects and designers that I've worked for that are just brilliant. You love their work, but then you meet them like, and you're like, why are you screaming at your staff in right. front of the client? And right. so I think the industry in general had these massive egos from architects, interior designers and lighting designers, particularly. I'm like, guys, we're lighting designers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have to have the egos here. And so I think more than most of my colleagues, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I mean, we talked about a little bit about feeling the crowd and I don't think mm-hmm. lighting designers are lighting designers. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned that, but I think what we do is we create personality, we create feeling, mm-hmm. we create negative space. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really the, it's the sexuality of a project, I think mm-hmm. is what lighting design really brings to something. And it doesn't matter if you're doing an office, a multifamily, a plaza or a nightclub. But number one reason I started the firm is I wanted to nurture careers in lighting design where mm. they didn't have to work for somebody who's awful. So I, I just, with whatever happens in the walls, and I've since expanded this a bit, but whatever happens in the walls of the studio will always be respectful, mm. will always treat each other as equals. Yep. And it doesn't matter if you've been with the company for 10 years or two weeks, we will hear your ideas. We want your input. I really like that as a as a principle. And it sounds like the leading principle for founding the company because if you get that right, everything else will follow. When you are looking at building out your team, what do you look for in a yeah. in a lighting designer? Because you have you know you have a super interesting background, right? But not everyone will have that experience with nightclubs and theaters i was just having this conversation with some who who was it he owns a a a bunch of hotels out in massachusetts the number one thing i look for is a sense of humor Hmm. i almost don't care i don't know if that's the right word i'm not as interested in your educational background or even where you're currently working the first thing you have to have for me is a sense of humor and if we don't have that. And I've made this mistake in the past where I've hired against that instinct where all the other stuff maps out. Like great background, great work, super clean documentation. Yeah. But without a sense of humor, and I'm not saying be funny. But it's, have a little bit of wit. Yeah. Have, yeah. It's, a, it's a wit because with wit comes observation, mm-hmm. comes the ability to diffuse tense situations. Uh, yeah an intelligence that just naturally comes with wit, street smarts. So that's the first thing I look for. And it generally, when you start peeling through that, you start to see creativity, you start to see storytelling, you start to see uh, a, a good work ethic. That's really it. So I'd imagine then that because of that, there's quite a bit of mentorship and training that happens a lot. on the job, right? Yeah. And, and it goes back to your comment about sense of humor if you just have a good way of looking about things and can ride through challenges with a sense of humor and a bit of wit and just a good approach, then they may not be the best lighting designer in the world on month three or even month six, but after a year or two, they're an integral part of the team and they've been a joy to work with since day one. A hundred percent. The lighting, lighting is hard to teach 
but negative space and a way of seeing the world is mm-hmm. for me unteachable. So you kind of have to have that from somewhere very young. Lighting design is hard. It's a very technical thing. And once you can get through the technical stuff, it, like a gymnast kind of, it kind of becomes more natural, right? Or any sport or music, you know, music can be very technical as well, but it's when you, when you stop reading the music and start playing the music that it really starts to take flight. I think one of the best places to learn lighting is when you're at the end of a project and we try to take as many of our new members into this moment, the end of a project where you're doing your aim and adjust. That's where you learn. That's where you learn your good decisions and your bad decisions. And when you're up there on a ladder focusing these light fixtures, that's where our new guys go, oh, okay, this is why you chose this fixture. This Mm -hmm. is why this color. Is it that moment that you recognize whether a project's successful or not? Or is it after it's opened and you're seeing it live and breathe as a building? The reason I ask is because I think a lot of people think about lighting in terms of photography and still imagery and the way a light casts on this particular wall, but they don't think about how someone interacts with that lighting. It seems like in order to sort of really succeed the success of lighting, you kind of need to see a building be used to see how well it's working. I know areas of projects, particularly large projects, but even restaurants, I know areas will be successful just by looking at the floor plans, RCPs, and details. Hmm. I can see it, much like I think I'm not a, I, I play like maybe five chords on the guitar, but much like when you read music, you can almost see it when you really get good at it. You can see if it's going to succeed just by looking at the page in an instant. Mm-hmm. There are moments where I can look at drawings and say, oh no, that's going to be, that's going to feel really good to be there, mm-hmm. to walk through that space or to sit at that table, that area I know will work. Will it all work together? You have a hunch. Right. But I think it's when it's all put together and the tablecloths go in or the furniture or the even in office spaces when they start putting the desks in, because there's a certain amount of guessing, you know, it's an educated guess at this point, there's a certain amount of guessing and then it all goes in and you're like, oh, that's great. But to answer the question a little bit more succinctly, I think opening day is when you really know it worked. Hmm. But you'll, you'll know, you'll feel, yeah. there's a moment where I feel safe. Okay. I like that. That's a nice way of thinking about it. So I'm going to change tack a little bit and and talk about LA and and, and the project. I wanted to, before we dive into the project itself, just talk about the identity of your company as a bi-coastal company. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that New York is more or less the headquarters. Yep. And LA is the secondary office. Yep. Do both offices have a shared identity or are they quite distinct in their identities? I'm curious about that approach and if that's a product of LA and New York being two great but extremely different cities. One of the reasons I like having the office in LA and I go back and forth between the two and it took me many years to figure out the LA culture from an mm-hmm. architectural lighting point of view. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I like it is because they're so different. And when we first started the company, I could not get the two teams to agree on anything. They, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. On specs, on colors, on coordination times. The pace of projects in LA is different than the pace in New York. 
there's an, there's an urgency to get things done in New York. There's a, there's a patience in LA. People are willing to come back next week and see how it goes. It's not the same. I, I found that very frustrating coming, <laughs> coming to LA. I just wasn't used to that. And I think I had developed the New York attitude, which is you get it done. And if you need to work on a Sunday to do it, of course, you work on a Sunday to do it. There's no question. Whereas yeah. here, it's like, well, hang on. I got, I got, I got to play tennis. Yeah. Or, or no, I don't want to go home at rush hour. I've got to, you know. Yeah, and and how dare you say that that's not as that's, that's less less important than the work? I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. How do you feel about that? I feel, I think that people's personal time in LA is more precious. I would definitely agree with that. I think that the way I describe it is that I exercise different muscles in LA than I did in New York. New York, I was there from age twenty one to about thirty. Mm -hmm. and a i think it was the best place in the world to be in your 20s but i worked like a crazy person and particularly with some of the firms i worked for shop in particular mm -hmm. i was working around the clock that became i think it does breed excellence la is is a little bit different it is slower but because there is more patience there is sometimes more room for creativity i think in la and architects sometimes and i could sort of argue this both ways but i think sometimes i give them a little bit more room to experiment in los angeles because the stakes are a little bit lower and <laughs> yes. just because just because the, the amount of money on the table is not it's, it's not just, it's, it's yeah. not the same it's just not the same degree and so i think that's a positive I think in New York, there's also a mixing of your work colleagues and mm -hmm. your personal time. So it's just sort of excitement and fun. You know, the accomplishment of just taking the subway and getting to work can sometimes just give you a sense of accomplishment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, what'd you do? I survived today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But there's there's a camaraderie in that, right? Yeah, and I think, and, sure. and, and that, mm -hmm. that doesn't exist quite as much in a way. And the inspiration. So... There is a hubris, though, that I, I had to shake off. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. I actually kind of disagree with that because that, you know, I, I grew up in New York and I didn't really know the difference. And I had this assumption that work life and creation, you know, creating things was uh, as urgent as it is everywhere else. And what I was saying earlier is my hustle didn't work in L.A. And I, I think if you can make it in New York, you can be respected by the world. I think in the meetings, New York is looking for an expert that knows what they're doing and will get it done. I think in LA, they're looking for somebody who will truly collaborate and help mm -hmm. us all come to the place together. I think that's a good observation, actually. You ultimately yeah. end up in the same place. But I think you're right. There's a You can take a breath in LA. Mm -hmm. The other thing I noticed in LA, and you say that it, the stakes aren't as higher, and I think that's also because your rents are lower and all of that sort of thing. Your labor is still about the same. Mm -hmm. But you can park construction trucks on the, you know, on the site, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you have room to build, you have access to the, to these construction sites. And I think that that makes a big difference in how we build, which makes, if you reverse engineer that, it makes a big difference in how we design. I just, yeah. And I, and I think that you can stand almost anywhere, certainly in Manhattan and in parts of Brooklyn, and you can look around and you can probably see one or two buildings that are designed by household name architects. 
Mm-hmm. In a lot of Manhattan now, that is definitely the case. Oh, sure. And one or two is way low in some areas. In mm-hmm. LA, that, that, that just isn't, that isn't the case. Yeah. It can be a depressing landscape, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it can. But I think that allows for, I think it does allow for more experimentation uh, in, some, in some ways. It does. And I think if you look at Culver City, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you'll see all this low rise. You know, we're also talking about f- some, of these, some of these properties have had maybe one building on them that wasn't, you know, just a nondescript useful building in its entire history. I mean, it's right. a very young city. Right. So uh, I think we're seeing in L.A. what New York was in the 1930s. Potentially. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we have the sprawl, but you're right. There's a creativity in LA that it does allow you to think about it. You can go south if you think too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. you can certainly ruin your project by overthinking it. Yeah. So the culture in LA, I wanted to bring that to New York and I wanted the New York culture to bring in LA. And ultimately over the, I don't know how many years it's been since we've been open in LA, I think um, six years now. I actually, what happened is LA inspired more New York than New York inspired LA. The hmm. the patience, the colors, the details, the way we speak to people, we've mm-hmm. slowed down our role a little bit in L.A., inside the office, not necessarily outside. Mm-hmm. So I think L.A.'s had more of an impact on New York than New York had on L.A. Interesting. Okay. That could be argued both ways, I'm sure, but I, I, I like to think that now living in L.A. And certainly, certainly the pop culture beyond architecture in LA there always feels like there is something brewing here which will influence the rest of the world i think that's been the, i think feel like that's been the case for many decades actually i think so too and if you look at fashion in LA there's great fashion that comes out of LA mm-hmm. especially downtown little t-shirt mm-hmm. companies that like Roika Roika yeah. are you know they they started as a small small little loft downtown LA uh, what's the uh, Aviator Nation? Mm-hmm. Great color, nice, light, lots of pop. It's funny in LA. I find a lot of inspiration in casual wear mm-hmm. and traveling each neighborhood. Each neighborhood in LA, the natural lighting. The natural lighting in Venice is different than the natural lighting in Santa Monica, which was very surprising to me when I discovered that in the in the early two thousands. What do you mean by that? Venice has a almost Caribbean pale to their blues and their pinks and their, their reds, mm-hmm. whereas Santa Monica has a little bit more hue. If you buy a, you know how you can get a hundred or 200 or 300% paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I feel like, like Venice is at like a hundred. It's a little bit paler. It's yeah. You'd have to do a couple of coats to really get the richness. Yep. Whereas Santa Monica is like one coat and it's dark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's just something about the natural light that changes even over those simple borders. And then go inland, you get to the valley, and the valley has that, there's sort of a clearness to it because it has less mm-hmm. haze. Yep. So yep. all of these, all this weather, all these microclimates in LA drastically change the natural light. And so if I'm doing a hotel in Culver City or even a residence or a restaurant, I'm going to do it differently than I'm going to do it downtown or WeHo mm-hmm. or Santa Monica or anywhere. Two of my favorite moments in LA was just, I was on my way back from Beverly Hills. I don't remember why. And I drove down one of the streets with the Yacaranda. Do you say Jacaranda or Yacaranda? I say Yacaranda. Yacaranda. I think that's the proper way. So I was driving down a street with the Yacaranda trees and there was a low 
two or three three o'clock sun and it creating this great dappled effect on this wide street, one of those residential streets in Beverly Hills. And there was, of course, a Bentley in front of me. And it was kind of a nice looking Bentley, not one of the new ones, one of the slightly older ones. Mm-hmm. And it turned up a vortex of purple leaves oh, wow. behind behind the car as it yeah. sped through ahead of me. And I slowed down to just really enjoy it. And the light came through all of that little vortex. And I said, this is this is unbelievable. This is like one of those beautiful split seconds I've ever seen. There's no way you can actually capture this. But as a lighting designer, I can capture the essence of that like in, in how I design lighting yeah. in Los Angeles. So that was one of my most favorite moments just observing LA. It's such a subtle little thing. So I want to talk about the project. So in LA, you've worked on you've worked on a lot of projects. So I'm going to list some of the some of the ones out: Sunset Time Hotel, Miramar Beach Resort, yeah, yeah. Oceanwide Plaza Park Hyatt. That's the Park Hyatt. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah the Pacific Palisades Village, which I actually oh, went I love to for, that project. That's great. To, yeah. It's a great project. Yeah, uh, actually went there for the first time recently. It's not near where I live, but mm-hmm. uh, really interesting urban planning. Culver Steps, mm-hmm. the Webster. And mm-hmm. in progress, I know you have the rather enormous Ava Arts District with Avalon, I believe. Yep. That's um, uh, Office Untitled. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and Rios, yep. Yep. So Office Untitled, another another guest on the podcast. Yep. Uh, and Rios, I think, in the future as well, hopefully. Great. But today, uh, we're going to focus on the press, which is technically in Costa Mesa, but we're gonna we're gonna say Los Angeles. Okay. So, uh, so <laughs> I think I think they might appreciate that too. Maybe. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think well, their identity is more well, LA than it is San Diego. That's that's my feeling too. And we're gonna we're gonna break the rules a little bit. So San Mateo developer Steelwave, who mm-hmm. actually has quite a close relationship with my current employer, Lincoln Property, oh, they finished construction last year on this. Can you tell us a little bit about because the history of this project is. Very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the history? This incredible property that is like a modern ruin in mm-hmm. California. It was the old uh, you know, Los Times. Angeles, yeah, the yeah. old uh, LA Times printing press. Mm-hmm. It's just massive concrete and enormous spaces, and everybody loves an old printing press building. You get a the, yeah. my first office in New York was actually in an old printing press building and all these DC power lines and the heavy duty floors and mm-hmm. massive rails. And that's kind of what it was like. And especially architects, we love to see on a structure. And I think that's the magic behind particularly Stephen Ehrlich. Who is, who is the architect? For, yeah, for the EYRC yeah. and Matt Cheney. But just the team at EYRC, there's such an honesty. And so... What I like about Stephen, uh, about Stephen Ehrlich is that there's this, you can see the history of the structure, right? Mm-hmm. How it was built, why it was built, all of those storytelling things. And I think when they came, when they were hired for the press, it was, couldn't have been a more perfect marriage because we want to see that. We want to know mm-hmm. that it's this place to celebrate its past. And the idea was to have all of these tenants that would have these long, instead of like we work, there would be long-term leases of, I think, 5,000 to 30,000 square foot spaces or something like that with this connecting all these connecting plazas and this really fantastic food court. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately what happened, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Ultimately what happened is I'm just making sure I get the name of the, uh, the client. They got, uh, 
a, an aerospace company essentially that came in and took mm. over the entire property. Anderall is the name. It's a non-weaponized defense aerospace company. Okay. Um, they make a lot of really cool things. And one of the, one of the spaces that was built was this, this huge, I think it was the 190,000 square foot um, new build. It's essentially mm. just a giant test facility now. It's this massive mock-up oh. space with hugely high ceilings. So yeah, it got taken over by one tenant. So the lighting of the project then itself, working with the EYRC, what was the, was there a kind of a thesis to the lighting design right from the get-go? Very much so. Very, very, that's why we get along so well, Steve and mm -hmm. Matt and their whole team and I. So we talk in, in similar terms, where we sort of see life in similar terms. There's again, that honesty of like the construction process. They had a very subtractive process to this. Like if you're, so they wanted to peel away anything that would inhibit you from seeing the origin of this building. So the concrete, the steel, the awnings that were used to protect the loading dock, right? They had these awnings that would you'd roll up your truck to, and they didn't want mm -hmm. the papers getting wet. Mm -hmm. So you'd load up to these loading docks and there was this massive steel structure. So we wanted to make sure that these are celebrated in ways, both architecturally and from a lighting point of view. So, but I didn't want to overdo it because I didn't want it to be, if, you know, I didn't want to like light up the pyramids, right? right, I, want, right. I want, you know, that's, that would be tacky, right? Yeah. Yep. So my process on that project started at the loading docks is kind of why I bring it up. There were a lot of other structures that are really particularly great to celebrate and to, to create negative and positive space. But my idea was, what if they left the lights on forever? and you discovered this building, you would have to come up to it and imagine what happened, but the lights were always on. So you'd be like, well, this must've been kind of an important area, right? Cause they have all these lights. But I was imagining just those like steel cage called vapor lights, but just essentially shipping lights, right? Just functional sure. lights, but I needed yeah. it to be pretty. So I essentially right. took that and said, what if I wasn't a lighting designer? How would I do this? Okay. And I kind of stumbled my way through the rest of the project to say, what would a not lighting designer do? Hmm. How do I celebrate these areas with not knowing all of the nuance of really expensive, finely tuned lights out there? Make it a little bit rough, make it a little bit, you know, so even though I used really high quality fixtures, I would still do it just sloppy enough. So mm -hmm. that it would look reflected concrete rather than finely tuned museum. Because I did not want this to look like the Getty Museum. You don't want it to be too pretty and delicate, right? Because that goes against, that's the antithesis of a printing press and a large concrete building with 40-foot exactly. ceilings. There's also a really key element to this project, as you can see, from the highway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we have to compete with Ikea. <laughs> right. Right. Which is, <laughs> so, which is hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We didn't want it to get lost in that blue yellow, right? No, no. So they didn't just paint the whole thing bright magenta or something. Just right. To exactly. Compete with it. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we wanted to be careful that we still wanted to feel, we wanted to feel important. We couldn't overpower Ikea. So we wanted to feel mm -hmm. more austere, like, you know, again, subtractive, like discovering. So when I say subtractive, for example, so in that awning, for example, for the by the loading dock, which all those loading docks were intended to essentially become individual or combined units of rented office space. So they cut giant holes 
in the awnings to have trees come through and I would light up the tree. That gave me a huge opportunity to say, okay, so the tree is celebrated. Let's splash that texture onto mm. the top of the building. Normally you wouldn't light the top of a building, right? If it's a, a ruins or something like that. But I said, you know what? There's a tree there that gives me an excuse. I don't have to do it perfectly because now I can texture the light off of the tree. So it's just sort of like it happened. Oh, how mm. pretty. Because the best lighting is always when nature does something unexpected. So yep. I wanted some of that to happen. And there's a lot of glass in the building too, in that giant atrium. So I wanted it to be these moments, which would then reflect and create more moments by mistake. But creating a mistake on purpose is very hard to do. Got it. Okay. So I'm curious how you transitioned, and, and maybe the answer to this is easy, and please state if it is, but you transitioned from kind of hospitality to a project that on the face of it is absolutely not a hospitality project. This is your, your lighting an old printing press, which is now occupied apparently by an aerospace company. Yeah. So what are the principles that are shared between both? And is it just the approach and just, yeah, how, how would you say that in your words? Everything is hospitality to me. I come from like, I come from hospitality, you know, I, I, I want to take care of people. I want to embrace people. And mm -hmm. so I don't think you're a different person at work than you are at the Waikiki mm -hmm. resort, than you are mm -hmm. at the library, that you are at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I think the separation between disciplines is weird when we say we do residential and we do commercial and we do institutional. Mm -hmm. I think it's all hospitality. It's sort of hospitality is the big mother of, of mm -hmm. all human and the built environment for humans. Mm -hmm. Because we're not building these environments for work. We're not building them for robots. We're building them for humans. So my job is to do the best I can to take care of you while you're transitioning through those buildings. And I'm going to give you lighting in your office that's going to make you feel like you're taken care of, but not in the way that you're taking care of at the spa. So I need to give you a brighter light. I need to make you feel good about yourself. I need to make you feel productive so you can be proud. And I need to give you function. But like in the press, I also need to give you moments of oasis. So the mm -hmm. atrium space, the outdoor space, the loading dock, the walk from the parking lot to the building in the evening particularly, those are the moments where I can really approach it like it's uh, a journey, like you're going to the old printing press, like that's supposed to be this thing. You go through these portals, we have this, this actual portal that's illuminated that has uh, vapor coming out of it. So you transition into something special. Mm -hmm. And then you can get into the more functional light, but I still want to make sure that it has a sex appeal to it. I tell some of my employees, I tell all my employees this actually, that if you're not able to have a romance in the building, then we haven't done our job right. What you're saying is that in offices that are designed by Bold, there's probably a lot more office romance than there might be in, in other I would in other love places. I would love to do a study on that. That data but, would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I remember designing the offices for Starwood in New York on Varick Street. And it's a hospitality company, but they were very specific that they have very office needs. Yeah. But I also wanted to imagine that these, these a young, a lot of young people were, this was before they got taken over by Marriott. I wanted to make sure that when people come in there, they want to be there, that they want mm -hmm. to be able to have that moment where you walk into a club or a restaurant and be like, oh my God, these people are cool. Mm -hmm. um, 
and bad lighting will make you very uncool very quickly. <laughs> you mentioned obviously working with Ehrlich and, and enjoying the collaboration with them. In terms of collaboration, right, how would you define like a successful relationship with an architect? Is it the architect who has the biggest impact on whether you find the project successful and enjoyable or is it the owner? I think that would be, I don't have as many answers for that question as, as there are clients, as there are projects mm -hmm. rather. Mm -hmm. uh, I think ultimately the client is responsible for the tenor of the project in a way because mm -hmm. if they're second guessing everybody, I think projects just roll you know, it starts with the client. If they start to roll downhill and go, go south because the client second guesses the architect, the architect doesn't give clear answers to the interior designer. Then I'm trying to find out the commonalities between what the interior designer is trying to do and the architect's trying to do. And I'm trying to tie it together. And the client changes their mind or says it's too expensive. I think those are the kinds of conversations that start to happen that make a project difficult to succeed. And I think when the client really trusts their designers, mm -hmm and architects and the whole team, and they put together a team that works, that's when they really succeed. The very few times that I've been in a situation where it started to be like two north poles of a magnet, like let's say the interior designer and the architect are just not seeing eye to eye, the client's usually smart enough to get rid of one of them. And then we all have to kind of start over, but it's worth it because it ultimately creates a successful project. And it may be a loss of several you know, months and a lot of dollars. But generally, when I've seen a good client, they can save it by doing that. It makes sense. The The most important part of a project to me is the formation of the team and the mm -hmm. team being everyone. Mm -hmm. It has to be a team that can work well together, can get through challenges well. And I do think that the owner and kind of position that my day job is in I think a lot of my responsibility is making sure that I'm setting up the team to be the most successful they could possibly be and to just maximize the talent in that group. If I haven't done that, I failed at my yep. job because no matter what the budget constraints are, schedule constraints, if everyone has an understanding of what they are at the beginning and have an understanding of what the goals are and are on board with those goals and have the opportunity to kind of get to know each other as well beyond just in OAC meetings or something like that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you're going to have a successful work partnership because everyone wants to do good work. Here's a good story about that. I had a terrible client. We did a restaurant in Vegas and the big client was MGM and they mm -hmm. hired us to do huge, huge project. But one of the restaurants was by another operator. And the owner, the, the MGM and this restaurant operator were just at, at odds every step of the way. And everything I did was wrong. And everything interior designer did was wrong. And it was just a lot of screaming. Anyway, we all fought our way through that project, getting screamed at all the time. And it turned out beautifully. And it was just an enormous amount of work. And about six months later, I get a call from the restaurant operator and I'm like, uh-oh. He calls me on my cell phone. I see that it's him and he's got another project for me. And I said, I won't say his name, but I said, uh, uh, let's say it's Jim. It's not Jim, but I say, Jim, you hate me. <laughs> Why would you? Well, we spent the last year screaming at each other. Why would you want to hire me? 
And he said, we worked at the kinks. We trust each other now. I said, that's mm-hmm. really clever. And the mm-hmm. next project we did with him was very successful. And we both recognized that it was the master client that was the problem. So we're nearing the end of the conversation. I wanted to bring it back to LA. And I want to look to the future. What continues to excite you about LA and the future of LA for you personally and and for your company as well? The talent that we get in LA is different from the talent we get everywhere else in the world. Hmm. And the talent that we work with, not just in my firm, but the talent that we work with, there is a, um, a real desire to enjoy what you do and have purpose in what you do. And I go back and forth about that because there's work and there's, you know, we're not supposed to really love every aspect of our job. I've always thought that, you know, one to 5% of your job is amazing. And the 95% of it is just hard work. (laughs) I think that's true. Yeah. So one of the things that excites me about Los Angeles, and you may have seen this too, for a while, and maybe I'm being, I'm I'm, I'm a guest in Los Angeles. You know, I've been there a long time. I've been... 23 years I've been there now, uh, back and forth, I think LA has finally seen itself as a design capital. I Mm -hmm. don't think it ever aspired to be, other than this really sensational, you know, the the Disney Hall, Richard Meyer, these massive projects, all of the really great architecture is hidden behind hedges and hanging off of hills. But now they want to be taken seriously. And with that, for me, They've started to understand that lighting plays a really big role in that. So the, the, even the smaller restaurants, they just sort of said, let the reps do it. We'll have an engineer kind of figure it out. Or they went to kind of do it themselves. But I think they're starting to see a legitimacy in the design world in Los Angeles, where the bar is much higher now. And that excites me. So my last question for you is a question I ask everyone. And it's a very basic question. What are your three favorite buildings or places in LA? In LA? In LA. Oh, that's a... It's a tough one. I have a lot, actually. Uh, Yeah. One of my favorite places in LA is a very peculiar place. Okay. 8,000 Sunset. 8,000 Sunset. It's a terrible building. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's a mall right on the corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset. But there's this wackiness. There's a, a coffee shop, which is now a Starbucks. It used to be a Buzz Coffee, but now it's a now it's a Starbucks. And it's just, I can't, I don't want you to think that it's a nice place. <laughs> They've done a decent renovation. You know, one of my favorite places is Culver Steps. It's one of the projects that we did. I love the, the transition over there. But there's this spot where an escalator comes down from Crunch. The Crunch, crunch Gym. Okay. And there's a, an art house movie, the Lemley Art House Movie Theater. And there's Wakano. But on the on the top this, floor. I could picture this. I could picture yeah, this. No, yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> there's a Trader Joe's that used to be a Sam Ash. There's a CVS and a CB2. And this is like open air, sort of weird mm-hmm. corner of a building. So there's this like giant escalator that goes up two and a half flights, maybe three flights. And it goes to the gym and the uh, Salon Republic and the movie theater. But then above that, there's this whole sort of balcony of private offices. I think one or two floors of private offices and all these celebrities and producers have their offices up there. So if you sit there and have a cup of coffee, you're seeing all the really hot boys coming out of crunch. You're seeing 
all the celebrities coming out of their offices. You're seeing the people who want to do some shopping at CVS and all these all these people going to get their hair did their hair done over at Salon Republic. And you just sit there and see the widest diaspora of Los Angeles. And I just love it in this horrible building, which has horrible parking. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you've just, uh, no one is going to beat that answer. I, you just, you, 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 I, like, I, like, I didn't know if this should be my answer. <laughs> you've defined, you've defined what LA is, which is it's, it's a strip mall, right? Like uh, you could, you could define LA as a strip mall that yeah. has, yeah, a gym with a lot of good looking people. <laughs> a few offices that have some celebrities in it. I mean, this is that's perfect. I love it. It's kind of cliche, but one of my favorite buildings in LA is the Granville. It's mm-hmm. just a, built in 1929. It's a French Normandy style apartment building. And for me, and the Ravenswood as well, over on Rossmore. I actually love that whole Ross, Rossmore area. Yep. And I keep going back to these deco things, but and I like a lot of the moderns. So don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I really do like like some of that stuff. But there's something about this idea of L.A., this Chinatown type of L.A. that rings to me. And the way that the light hits them and these massive slate roofs, mm-hmm. these small windows that don't take air conditioning, the casement windows. It, I have a real nostalgia for it. And for me, that reminds me, you know, they pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Um, it reminds me of... LA is starting to feel that it needs to preserve its history. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think all of those buildings have a very cinematic LA quality to them, which you have to have no feelings to drive through LA and not see these buildings and get a little little bit of views just thinking, oh, it's kind of cool to be here. And it feels good. I think you pegged it. It makes me feel good to be there. It makes me feel proud. Yeah. yeah. Buildings can do that, actually. Buildings can, can make you feel proud to be there. That's what do you have a, I'd love to know your spot. My three change constantly. My, mine would change tomorrow, but, but that 8,000 sunset has always been one of my favorite spots in the world. <laughs> so I think the Capitol Records building. Oh, Hollywood yeah. I, now I want to choose that one. It's <laughs> fantastic. So that one's yeah. one. But I that's, do a, love- that's a great choice, yeah. The on Wilshire Boulevard, and and I drive down Wilshire all the time, and that's had that whole street and its history as the sort of linear downtown. Even the staples on Wilshire and Cochrane is cool. So that one is fantastic. But the the where the Wilton is, which is a oh the Wilton yeah, amazing. So the blue again, uh, deco. yeah, fantastic deco building, especially when you catch it with sort of the LA sunset and the sort of gradient of color, like it just glows in this incredible way. So I'd say those two, I, I go back and forth. I love the LA strip mall typology. I just think it's amusing and functional and very of this place. And so mm-hmm. as someone who was born in London and spent a lot of time in New York, I think in previous years I would have looked down on the LA strip mall. But I love the fact that I can go into one and there's always – there's always a 7-Eleven sort of type place. There's always a nail salon. There's always a donut mm-hmm. restaurant. There's, there's always there, a donut. I mean, ca- we have a lot LA's of donuts. Like capital donuts. So there's just the, all these mm-hmm. basics and everyone goes to them. And I think there's a sort of a... There's, mm-hmm. LA is not a place where there is democratization of experience, if I want to put it that way. In, in New York, everyone mm-hmm. gets in the subway. Everyone gets in the same sort of slightly smelly taxi cab. 
in mm-hmm. LA, you know, someone's flying by in their matte black G-Wagon and you're thinking, wow, your life is pretty different to mine. But mm-hmm. I think everyone goes through a strip mall at, at some point, And that is the common denominator, that and the highway. So I would say the, the LA strip mall, generically. You've inspired me. I would love to do a, a coffee table book of Los Angeles strip malls. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Well, Brian, we have to, to end it somewhere. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. So, so fun talking to you. And I love your work. I think a lot of other people do as well. It's, it's incredible. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.